0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Mixed state refers to an affective condition in which various combinations of depressive and manic symptoms are simultaneously present. Compared with non-mixed episodes, a mixed state is characterized by a more complex clinical presentation and has a less favorable response to conventional pharmacologic treatments. The authors of this article prospectively evaluated the short-term outcome and the predictors of response to bitemporal electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, in nearly 200 consecutive patients with a bipolar mixed state according to DSM-IV diagnostic criteria. All patients were considered resistant to pharmacologic treatment and were evaluated prior to and after the ECT course using the Hamilton Rating Scale for Depression, Young Mania Rating Scale, Brief Psychiatric Rating Scale, and Clinical Global Impression Scale. At the end of the ECT course, approximately 70% of patients with a severe bipolar mixed state who did not respond to conventional pharmacologic management, showed improvement. Approximately 30% of those showed symptomatic remission. Long-lasting mixed episodes with a prevalence of excitement symptoms, which were associated with a lifetime comorbidity of obsessive-compulsive disorder, predicted a lack of complete remission. ECT for mixed episodes is not specifically described in most current treatment guidelines for bipolar disorder. Consequently, many patients are treated for long periods of time with complex drug combinations, possibly decreasing the chance of recovery in some mixed-state patients who would respond if treated with ECT in a timely manner. Effective treatment of major depressive disorder, or MDD, is essential as the likelihood of achieving response or remission decreases with every subsequent failed treatment. For patients who fail to respond to their first antidepressant, changing the antidepressant or adding another drug, such as a second-generation antipsychotic, are recommended strategies. Brexpipazole is a serotonin Dopamine Activity Modulator, developed as adjunctive treatment for patients with MDD. In these two companion articles, which were funded by Otsuka and Lundbeck, FACE and colleagues conducted two Phase three, randomized, placebo-controlled studies with the aim of evaluating the efficacy and tolerability of adjunctive brexpiprazole in adults with MDD an inadequate response to one to three antidepressants. After enrollment, all patients received treatment with an antidepressant selected by the investigator for eight weeks. If they consistently failed to respond to this agent throughout the eight weeks, they were randomized for a further six weeks to adjunctive brecpipazole, one or three milligrams daily in one study, two milligrams daily in the other study, or placebo. Patients who received adjunctive brecpipazole at doses of two or three milligrams showed improvement in montgomery asberg Depression Rating Scale total score after six weeks, compared with patients taking antidepressant monotherapy. Adjunctive brecpipazole, two and three milligrams also showed improvements compared with antidepressant monotherapy in most other efficacy endpoints. Across both studies, brecpipazole was well tolerated, with few patients discontinuing due to side effects. The authors conclude that adjunctive brecpipazole may be a useful option for patients with both MDD and inadequate response to antidepressants. The full text of both articles is freely available online. Please visit our September table of contents at Psychiatrist.com. Nationwide studies have shown that patients with psychiatric disorders die at an earlier age than the general population. Although the shorter lifespan for these individuals may be caused by unhealthy living, Medically-induced malignant cardiac arrhythmias have been proposed as possible causes. To date, researchers have not investigated whether psychiatric patients also have a higher incidence of sudden cardiac death than the general population. In this article, the authors compared nationwide incident rates of sudden cardiac death in young adults living in Denmark. They studied individuals with and without previous psychiatric hospital contact. Their work was supported by the Danish government and private institutions in Denmark. 395 cases of sudden cardiac death were discovered. 77 of these cases had a previous psychiatric hospital contact, where the remaining 318 cases were without such contacts. The research uncovered a four-fold increase in risk of sudden cardiac death in patients who had previous psychiatric hospital contact compared to the general population. The authors conclude that these results highlight the need for cardiovascular monitoring and management in patients with mental illness. To date, at least nine states allow the use of medical marijuana to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. As a result, psychiatrists who treat patients with PTSD are often asked whether they would recommend medical marijuana as a therapeutic option. However, no randomized clinical trials have evaluated marijuana for such use. In this month's CME article, Wilkinson and colleagues used a large naturalistic cohort of over 2,000 veterans with PTSD to document the associations between marijuana use and PTSD severity before and after specialized PTSD treatment. Their work was supported in part by the National Institute of Mental Health. After controlling for relevant covariates, The study shows that those using marijuana after discharge but not at admission and those who used at admission and after discharge had worse PTSD symptoms. Their symptoms were worse versus those who used at admission but not after discharge and those who never used marijuana. Those who started after discharge also had the highest level of violence of all the groups. While these data cannot provide causal conclusions, the result did not support the hypothesis that marijuana use is helpful for PTSD treatment and suggests that it may be associated with a worsening of symptoms. Prospective randomized trials are needed to elucidate the relationship between marijuana use and PTSD. Patients diagnosed with depression are at an elevated risk of physical illness. Researchers have noted that depression negatively affects immune function and leads to increased susceptibility to infection, including herpes zoster. Few epidemiologic studies have been conducted on whether patients with depression are at a higher risk of herpes zoster. The authors of this article conducted a retrospective, population-based cohort study to investigate whether depression is associated with an increased risk of developing the infection. Their work received support from the Taiwanese government, China Medical University, and from private support. The authors investigated 20,000 patients with depression and 90,000 healthy controls from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Claims Database. The patients were frequently matched by sex age and indexed year. The risk of herpes zoster was calculated between the two cohorts. The authors found that the incidence of herpes zoster was 1.3 times higher in patients with depression than in controls. Depressed subjects aged 45 to 54 years had a statistically significantly higher risk of developing the infection than controls. Also, risk for herpes zoster was higher in depressed patients with comorbidities, including malignant conditions, rheumatic diseases, hyperlipidemia, renal diseases, anxiety, sleep disorders, and hypertension. The authors conclude that further investigation is required to identify the underlying causes of the associations found in their results and to determine whether appropriate treatment of depression can decrease the risk for developing herpes zoster. Psychiatric symptoms in sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or CJD, have not been sufficiently evaluated in this scientific literature. To address this, the authors of this article set out to describe psychiatric symptoms in sporadic CJD with respect to molecular subtype. The authors classified patients according to established diagnostic criteria. They recruited and investigated 248 patients in Germany who had sporadic CJD and a known molecular subtype. Psychiatric symptoms were collected by direct examination by study physicians or extracted from medical documentation. The authors compared their data with published data on variant CJD. Their research was funded by the German Federal Ministry of Health and the European Commission. Study results showed that 90% of sporadic CJD patients had psychiatric symptoms. Most of the symptoms were found at the disease onset. All psychiatric symptoms except illusions were found early in the disease course. Psychiatric symptoms in sporadic CJD were less frequent than invariant CJD. The authors conclude that psychiatric symptoms occurring early in the disease course are common not only in variant CJD, but also in other CJD types. Electric Convulsive Therapy, or ECT, is a highly effective treatment for major depressive disorder, but it can have significant cognitive side effects. Modifications to ECT have been proposed to ameliorate these side effects, with the most recent being ultra-brief pulse-right unilateral ECT. This form of ECT has been increasingly adopted in routine clinical practice, despite a relatively small evidence base. In this study, a group of Australian researchers conducted a meta-analysis of six studies to evaluate the relative efficacy and cognitive effects of brief pulse versus ultra-brief pulse ECT for depression. The authors found that brief pulse ECT was significantly more efficacious than ultra-brief pulse, requiring an average of one fewer session to reach treatment response. However, the number needed to treat in favor of brief pulse ECT was 13, suggesting that the clinical difference in efficacy may be small. Ultra-brief pulse ECT, however, had significantly fewer cognitive side effects across the range of cognitive domains. The authors recommend that ultra-brief pulse right unilateral ECT should be considered for patients who are particularly sensitive to the cognitive side effects of ECT. Medication non-adherence accounts for a substantial worsening of disease, as well as more hospital admissions, more health care costs, and increased mortality. Many people find it hard to take their medication as prescribed and to be open about it when talking to their physicians or their pharmacists. Common social behavior like this prevents detection of medication non-adherence by healthcare care workers. The authors of this article investigated a large cohort for non-adherence risk factors to provide focus for healthcare care workers. In this study from the Netherlands, which was supported by funding from the Dutch government, the authors examined both depression and anxiety, as these conditions overlap in symptomatology and often coexist within patients. Depression and anxiety also have high comorbidity with somatic diseases, and depression is a well-known major risk factor for nonadherence. Study results showed that all current and remitted depression and anxiety diagnoses were risk factors for medication nonadherence, as compared to subjects who never had a depressive or anxiety diagnosis. Age and antidepressant use were associated with less medication nonadherence. However, alcohol dependence and the number of dietary supplements taken did prove to be risk factors for non-adherence. Associations of anxiety diagnosis with medication non-adherence were mainly driven by depression diagnosis. The authors conclude that, given the high somatic comorbidity of patients with depression and anxiety disorders, health care workers should address medication non-adherence, even in patients who are in symptomatic remission. Clinical staging, which divides the natural course of disease progression into consecutive stages, has been proposed to supplement psychiatric diagnosis. For major depressive disorder, staging might lead to early detection and development of specific treatments for specific stages of depression. A group of researchers from the Netherlands recently examined the construct and predictive validity of a staging model that distinguishes eight stages based on symptom severity, symptom duration, and number of episodes. Participants from the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety were assigned to one of the eight stages of the model and were followed up after two years. Construct validity was examined through differences in clinical characteristics between stages, such as depression severity, age of onset, and comorbid anxiety. Predictive validity was examined through the extent to which baseline stages predicted follow-up outcomes, such as the presence of major depressive disorder. Later stages and follow-up outcomes Scored poorer than early stages on most clinical characteristics, confirming validity of the model. Both construct and predictive validity analyses suggest that the model performs best in the preclinical stages. In the clinical stages, validity analyses showed no differences between each consecutive stage but only between stages with long-lasting symptoms compared to stages differing in number of episodes. In general, the long-lasting stages scored the poorest. This study shows reasonable validity for a major depressive disorder staging model that bases its stages purely on clinical characteristics. Results suggest that duration of exposure to the depressed state best characterizes the clinical stages of major depressive disorder further study should test whether modifications to these clinical stages might improve the validity of the model nightmares are a problem in mental health care they disturb sleep and may even disrupt recovery from mental illness usually nightmares are associated with post-traumatic stress disorder but Recent research has shown that they are common in populations with diverse psychiatric disorders. Currently, imagery rehearsal therapy, or IRT, is the treatment of choice for nightmares. Patients learn to change the storyline of a recurring nightmare into a new dream. This new dream is rehearsed by imaging the storyline while awake. The authors of this study aimed to determine whether IRT was an effective treatment for nightmares in a heterogeneous psychiatric population. Their research received support from a mental health care organization in the Netherlands. The study included 90 patients with psychiatric disorders who were randomized to IRT or treatment-as-usual conditions. The IRT intervention consisted of six individual sessions, in addition to treatment as usual. Nightmare frequency and nightmare distress were assessed as well as general psychiatric and PTSD symptoms. The patients were assessed at the start of the trial, after the IRT, and three months later. IRT showed a moderate effect on nightmare frequency, nightmare distress, and psychopathology measures compared with treatment as usual. These effects were largely sustained at the three-month follow-up. The authors conclude that IRT is an effective treatment for nightmares among patients with comorbid psychiatric disorders, and it can be employed in addition to their ongoing treatment. Unipolar depression is often accompanied by psychomotor symptoms such as retardation or agitation, which are usually assessed by the clinician. The authors of this study aimed to quantify motor activity in acutely admitted inpatients with unipolar depression using actigraphs, which are wrist-worn devices that record movement. The patients were divided into two groups— with and without motor retardation based on a clinical assessment prior to actigraphy monitoring. The authors found that patients with and without motor retardation had different activity patterns. Specifically, motor retarded patients had a reduced mean activity level and higher intra-individual variability in activity during 24 hours compared to the patient's Without motor retardation. In an active morning period of approximately one hour, patients without retardation displayed an activity pattern of increased complexity compared to motor retarded patients. This and other findings in depressed inpatients without motor retardation closely resemble those of previously studied patients with mania. Both patient groups demonstrated lower mean activity and increased variability compared to healthy controls during 24 hours. The findings from this study suggest that variations in activity are clinical signatures of depression that can be quantified by objective means such as actigraphy. Furthermore, activated depression resembles mania. This study received funding support from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and other Norwegian institutions. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the September Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Hip fracture is an important public health issue that can lead to substantial morbidity and mortality. It is an issue that consequently reduces quality of life and increases health care costs. In this article, the authors conducted a nested case-controlled study sponsored by the Taiwanese government that utilized an administrative database of a Taiwanese population. They found that antipsychotic use compared to antipsychotic non-use was associated with a 1.3-fold increased risk for hip fracture among patients with schizophrenia. The risk of hip fracture was higher among women, patients who took first-generation antipsychotics, and those who were 65 years of age or older. The authors conclude that the underlying mechanisms related to the effect of antipsychotic drugs on elevated risk of hip fracture should be further explored. Bipolar 1 disorder is a severe psychiatric disorder affecting up to 1% of individuals worldwide, onset peaks in adolescence and young adulthood, and is associated with significant impairment in psychosocial functioning. In this article, the authors present a literature review and meta-analysis that synthesize the available outcome data after a first episode of mania. The authors identified eight prospective studies representing a total of 734 first episode patients. The syndromal recovery rates were 83% at six months and 88% at one year. Only 62% of patients had achieved a period of symptomatic recovery within one year. Recurrence rates were 26% within six months. by one year, and 60% by four years. Younger age at first episode was linearly associated with the risk of recurrence after one year. The regression model calculated by the authors predicts a 49% risk of recurrence at one year for a first episode at 20 years of age, 41% for a first episode at 25 years of age, and 33% for a first episode at 30 years of age. The authors speculate that there might be a window of opportunity to alter the progression of bipolar disorder. As a consequence, intensive early intervention programs aimed at changing the course of this debilitating disease should be encouraged with additional characterization of their efficacy. Monitoring serum levels of antipsychotics in patients with schizophrenia has yet to enter common clinical practice despite a substantial body of evidence in favor of doing so. This month's ASCP Corner article looks at the possible consequences of failing to monitor serum levels and the ways in which such measurement can play a critical role in making informed clinical decisions. The full text of this article is freely available online please visit the September Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. As a prerequisite for marketing approval, generic drugs are bioequivalent to the original brand. So is there ever a reason to avoid changing a patient's treatment to a generic formulation? In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade takes a look at the literature on bioequivalence and at the question of whether to switch patients from a branded to a generic drug. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the September Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight four educational activities. Excessive daytime sleepiness and fatigue can lead to accidents or unemployment if left unrecognized and untreated. Explore our first CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to learn about patient report scales and objective measures to screen for these symptoms. Discover how to recognize common disorders that may cause or contribute to excessive daytime sleepiness and fatigue. Unrecognized conditions may be contributing to symptoms of daytime sleepiness and fatigue in your patients with Sleep disorders. In this second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, find out about psychiatric, neurologic, and medical conditions that frequently coexist with sleep disorders. Review both pharmacologic and non pharmacologic treatment strategies to improve patient outcomes. Do you know how different antidepressant classes can actually complement each other? Watch this third CME activity, a webcast, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, to learn about the mechanism of action of various antidepressant classes and to understand how to apply that knowledge to your patients with depression. Have you ever wondered how to reliably differentiate ADHD from a learning disorder or another psychiatric condition? Have you been uncertain about the value of neuropsychological testing in this endeavor? If so, this fourth CME activity, a case vignette and review, should help you better evaluate and manage patients and their families. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the September issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.